Good morning and welcome to Grace Notes. This is our adult Sabbath school online. Uh, this class, Grace Notes, is normally in the sanctuary, but it's been almost a year since we've been able to meet together in the sanctuary. And I'm telling you, I'm really hoping and praying that uh, we will see that day come again soon. But in the meantime, welcome. This is uh, a wonderful uh, way to study together. And uh, today's study, uh, we're going to cover uh, several chapters in Isaiah, chapters 18 to 23. Now, I need to alert you that there's been uh, some slight adjustments in the uh, the chapter divisions, in other words, uh, the the block of chapters that we're going to be covering each week, and and that's because in in looking at the sequence, um, I had used a program called Logos to uh, create a reading plan, and uh, it divided it fairly evenly among chapters. But I discovered that some of the chapters really belonged together, and I hated to split the the reading or the end of the week uh, in an awkward place. Uh, probably one example of that was last week when we covered chapter 12 and uh, the previous week had been in, had ended with chapter 11 and chapter 11 and 12 really, really go together. So I've made some adjustments uh, and I'd like to send it to you if uh, you would like to have the updated um, uh, reading plan, uh, just send an email to mleno at azurehills.org. And if you can't remember that, uh, it'll be on the screen during the end graphics uh, for this program. Also, uh, let me just say that uh, I referenced a, a Bible software called Logos, and it is by far the best uh, software that I have ever found. And I think it's pretty, that's a, a fairly unanimous uh, decision by those who use uh, Bible software a lot. Uh, so I recommend it. Um, uh, however, uh, please know what you're getting into. Uh, it's a very complex program and it can be very expensive. Uh, so if you do get into it, don't let them upsell you on, on everything because uh, you can... Uh, end up investing a lot. Uh, it can be worth it though. So depending on what your, uh, your needs are. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our loving God, thank you for appointing your prophets to speak the word of the Lord to your people throughout all the ages. And today as we as we look at some of the troubling passages in Isaiah, give us good news. Help us to understand the prophecies about the Messiah and how all of these things can be applied not only to a long, long ago day, but also to our own day today. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going through Isaiah chapters 18 through 23. And uh, here's a, a, uh, 
just to kind of set the historical context, here's a kind of an updated version of the timeline that I showed you last week. So this, this timeline uh, begins in approximately uh, BCE uh, 750. Now, don't let the BCE uh, trouble you. It's the same as BC. Uh, BCE has become more or less the standard uh, way that scholars refer to it because it's a more uh, neutral term and it's actually a little more accurate. Uh, BC, uh, of course, uh, literally means before Christ. And that was literally not true because Christ was born, you know, somewhere between four and six BC, which makes BC rather inaccurate. So don't let that throw you. BCE just stands for before common era. And, and that's because it's commonly accepted to uh, start the uh, uh, era uh, at a certain point. So in uh, 750 uh, BCE, we have the, the prophet Amos. Uh, we talked about the various prophets last week. You have Amos and Hosea, uh, who are speaking to the northern ten tribes, and then in uh, 722, I had actually said 721 last week, and uh, 722 is probably the more accepted date for when Israel was, was scattered, when the, the 10 northern tribes were taken into captivity and they were, they were scattered. Uh, the reason for the discrepancy is that uh, the... Uh, Assyrian king uh, probably attacked in 721 and his uh, siege lasted into 722. Uh, you will notice on the, uh, just above that uh, line, you'll notice the uh, procession of kings there. And these are all Assyrian kings during this time period from, from 750 all the way to 701. So. Uh, you have the first uh, Assyrian king there, Tiglath-Pileser. Uh, then you have Shalmaneser, uh, and then Sargon. Uh, there was a change right around the time of the siege of Israel, just afterwards, uh, where you have the change of uh, uh, Shalmaneser to Sargon. And then uh, after Sargon comes that famous king, Sennacherib. And you remember Sennacherib attacks Judah uh, in 701, I mean, he, he's been attacking Judah, but he gets all the way to Jerusalem and he's knocking on the door. And uh, because of divine intervention, he has to withdraw, which is uh, an amazing uh, turn of events, not just because of the miraculous intervention of God, but because it preserves the unconditional covenant that God had with David, that he promised David, your throne will last forever. Um, now, of course, we believe that eventually uh, Christ would fulfill that, uh, that covenant. Um, Pastor Starla and I are gonna talk a little bit more about covenants uh, in the last part of our uh, discussion today. So, then at the bottom, you see uh, the Israelite uh, kings. Uh, I should say the 
the Jewish kings, the, the kings in, Jew in, in Judah, uh, the uh, Israeli or uh, northern uh, kings are uh, not listed here. So in Judah, we have uh, Jotham, first of all, then Ahaz, uh, which is very prominent during the time that we're talking about uh, Isaiah uh, in these uh, first few uh, weeks. And then uh, you have Hezekiah, of course. Uh, Hezekiah comes at the end of uh, Isaiah's career, and uh, he is the king when uh, Sennacherib uh, finally attacks. Okay, so with that uh, kind of historical context in mind, uh, let's go to our chapters for today. And I want to show you an outline of the chapters. Uh, chapter 18 uh, can be identified in a very uh, peculiar way it's talk, uh, it, because it talks about the land of buzzing wings. And this land, uh, which we're going to get to in a moment, um, uh, there's forecast some rather troubling times for uh, this land of buzzing wings. Uh, chapter 19 talks about the tall, smooth-skinned people, which are also referred to in, in chapter 18. Uh, who are these people? Well, they're, they're people just south of, uh, of Egypt, probably Ethiopia or Sudan, uh, in a place called Cush. Then uh, in chapter 20, we have uh, Isaiah being told by God to strip. So uh, I've called this the naked prophet, although technically he was probably not completely naked. Uh, and yet it was supposed to uh, foretell uh, the nakedness of the people as they were taken into captivity. Chapter 21, Babylon is fallen. Uh, a, a theme that, of course, is taken up in the book of Revelation. Then uh, chapter 22 uh, talks about Judah being uh, so faithless. Then chapter 23, uh, Yahweh deals with a country called Tyre, which is right there, a coastal town uh, right on uh, the coast of the Mediterranean, very famous for being, being a trading port a port city. So uh, this is our outline for today. Uh, as always, uh, I have to warn you that we're not going to go through everything in detail, but um, one of the advantages of doing a reading plan like this uh, is that we don't, technically we don't leave everything out. Now, obviously I won't be able to read every word of every chapter uh, during our Sabbath school sessions, but um, I really hope that you are reading these chapters at home. Uh, it, uh, it will give you a, a wonderful context from which to understand some of the really spectacular sayings in, in Isaiah. It's, it's kind of tempting to uh, just go through Isaiah and pick out the familiar passages and the, you know, the passages that refer to the Messiah and various other things and, and kind of, you know, leave out a lot of the context. Well, here's, here's our chance to kind of let Isaiah set the agenda for us. Doesn't mean that we can't uh, stop along the way and focus in on some of the, the really important uh, sayings, but uh, we can let Isaiah, uh, 
uh, kind of set the pace for us and 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 the context. So let's uh, let's dive into chapter 18. And I really encourage you to get your Bibles out at this point if you don't have them already. Uh, I'm not going to have these words on the screen, which means it's really to your advantage to have your Bible in front of you as we go through this. So here's the beginning of chapter 18, book of Isaiah. Uh, in the NIV, it's, uh, it's got a chapter title there. Of course, that was not in the original, uh, but it's, it's descriptive. It says, a prophecy against Cush. So here's verse one. Woe to the land of whirring wings along the rivers of Cush, which sends envoys by sea in papyrus boats over the water. Go, swift messengers, to a people tall and smooth-skinned, to a people feared far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech whose land is divided by rivers. Uh, what's going on here? Um, God is talking through Isaiah about a, a country just south of Egypt that was fairly dominant during this time. In fact, uh, Egypt itself was probably ruled over by uh, the Cushites, uh, the, the people in this, uh, the upper region of the Nile, uh, just south of uh, Egypt. And so these, these people uh, at this time in history, they, they know about Assyria. Uh, Assyria is the uh, emerging superpower of the entire region. Uh, that makes Egypt and Cush feel a little bit insecure. And so they apparently send some envoys up to Judah to try to, uh, you know, get an alliance. Uh, perhaps they can enlist Judah's help to, uh, to be with Cush uh, and Egypt uh, against Assyria. Now, Isaiah has already warned Ahaz that this is a dangerous game to play. And uh, you recall before this, the, the game was being played with Ephraim, which represents the northern ten tribes, uh, and Aram. And uh, so Aram and Ephraim, uh, in the words of Isaiah, were trying to make a coalition against Assyria, and they were trying to pull Judah in with them. Uh, except that in that case, instead of uh, just relying on diplomacy, uh, they were actually invading Judah or threatening to and uh, basically threatening to annex uh, Judah into their territory with uh, the northern ten tribes and Aram. And that must have been very tempting. I mean, after all, here's, here's an opportunity to, uh, you know, join the, the 12 tribes again. And, and God, through Isaiah, warned against that. Don't play politics. Don't, don't play politics with, with uh, this alliance because... Uh, this alliance is not going to last anyway. And in, in fact, the fall of uh, the northern ten tribes is foretold, along with Aram, along with Syria, and and all those other 
countries up there that were trying to band together against Assyria. So God is constantly telling Judah through Isaiah, look, don't, don't be out there playing, playing politics with the other nations. Uh, it will not turn out well. In fact, it'll turn out very badly. So let's, uh, let's read on. Uh, verse 3 is a very fascinating verse because it says, all you people of the world, you who live on the earth, when a banner is raised on the mountains, you will see it. And when a trumpet sounds, you will hear it. Now, this sounds like God is addressing not just Judah uh, and, and not just uh, Cush and Egypt, but is actually addressing uh, all the other nations as well. Uh, and verse four, this is what the Lord says to me. I will remain quiet and will look on from my dwelling place. Now, this is a departure from some of the ways that Yahweh has been speaking in previous chapters, because instead of saying, I'm going to bring this other nation against you, and I'm going to cause all of this uh, disaster, and I'm going to uh, bring your enemies against you, and you're going to be captive and everything, uh, God is addressing all the nations, uh, including Judah, but uh, Cush and uh, Egypt and uh, Philistia and, and all of the uh, all of the nations, and he's saying there's going to be some results from the course of action that you are taking, and I'm going to watch it happen. And this is communicating two things, uh, especially to uh, Judah through Isaiah. And that is that God is still in charge, even though there's all this chaos out there in the world. And, and even though there's a lot of insecurity, and even though there's this temptation to play politics and, and get allies and, and uh, you know, kind of choose up sides and so forth, uh, God is still in charge. He's still watching. And uh, so that's a that's a very assuring thing. In the in the middle of all this chaos, God is saying, "I'm still here. I'm still in charge. I'm still watching." I'm going to skip down to the end of the chapter, end of chapter 18, where God says that uh, he's again talking about the gifts that will be brought to the Lord Almighty. This is in verse seven, uh, and and these are probably being brought by the envoys. Uh, from a people feared far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech whose land is divided by rivers, the gifts will be brought to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord Almighty. Uh, so once again, uh, God is not only noting all of these political uh, movements that are afoot, but he's, also, he's, he's still centering his attention in Jerusalem on uh, Mount Zion, which is where his people are. Uh, now in verse, I'm sorry, chapter 19, then the prophecy shifts from Cush to Egypt itself. And verse four, for example, says, I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, the, the Lord Almighty. 
now there's a lot in that uh, chapter we can we can go through, but we're going to have to uh, skip through for <laughs> reasons of time. Uh, verse 16 is a little bit strange uh, to us. Uh, it would not have been strange to them. Uh, in that day, the Egyptians will become weaklings. Now that is the way the NIV has chosen to translate it. The original word actually means women. Uh, in that day, the Egyptians will become like women. And this is, uh, this is the way the ancient people would have expressed uh, weakness. And you can say it's patriarchal, and absolutely it is. And you can say that it's uh, you know, full of all kinds of uh, you know, anti-feminine bias, <laughs> and certainly it is, but that is the way they expressed themselves in those days. So the NIV has chosen to uh, kind of remove uh, that uh, uh, kind of expression, which I have very mixed feelings about. Uh, they have translated it accurately in the sense of the meaning is the Egyptians will become weaklings. Uh, that is an accurate translation of the meaning, but it's not an accurate translation of the, the actual words. So uh, you can decide for yourself whether you think that's uh, appropriate or not. Uh, in verse 20, um, when they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior, a defender, and he will rescue them. Now, keep in mind, this is within a prophecy of doom against Egypt. And then, and then God is saying, I'm going to send you a savior. Uh, there's an interesting progression of thought throughout Isaiah. Because in the beginning, we, of course, we find God very frustrated with uh, his people because uh, although they may be uh, faithful to his laws and they may be, you know, worshiping correctly to the letter, uh, they are uh, cruel people and, and, and the whole place is full of oppression and, and cruelty and so forth, but they're still his people. And the reason why he brings punishments on them is because they're his people. Uh, and then God will turn around and uh, punish the adversaries, even after he's asked them to come up against Israel, then he'll turn around and punish uh, Israel's uh, enemies. Why? Because they're Israel's enemies. But then there's a, this kind of shift that's taking place now where God is saying, I not only love Judah, but I love Egypt as well and all these other countries. That's an important concept to keep in mind as we go through here. Then in verse 23, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. This is incredible. What a, what a dramatic shift. And sometimes we think of, uh, we mistakenly think of God as this angry God of the Old Testament that's just out to, you know, destroy everybody. Um, 
On the contrary, as God is revealing himself through Isaiah, we get a picture of a God who is not only frustrated with everybody, but he loves everybody. He not only claims Israel and Judah as his people, but he claims Egypt and even Assyria. And, and this is an incredible uh, kind of turning point here in the book of Isaiah. Now we let's uh, move on quickly to chapter 20. And this is entitled by the NIV as a prophecy against Egypt and Cush. So now <laughs> Egypt and Cush are being lumped together. Uh, in the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, uh, remember our timeline, sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod. Uh, Ashdod was kind of one of the uh, areas that was in league with Assyria and attacked and captured it. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos. He said to him, take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so going around stripped and barefoot. Now, apparently, even though I've called this the naked prophet, uh, he was probably not literally naked uh, in the way that we think of, of naked. He was stripped, but that probably literally means he was wearing a linen undergarment, which was uh, common for slaves to wear. And that was appropriate because this is a prophecy of a coming captivity or a coming uh, disaster. Uh, let's read on. Then the Lord said, this is verse three, just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years. Well, that's a, <laughs> that's a long time to uh, endure that. As a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bared to Egypt's shame. So here we have, uh, you know, you think prophets had an easy job? No, <laughs> they didn't, uh, especially Isaiah. Uh, he's, he's going around practically naked for three years. As uh, in the way Golden Gate puts it, he embodies the word of God. He embodies what God is saying uh, and in foretelling what is going to happen to Egypt and Cush. And this is the way the prophecy is done. Now we move very quickly. Uh, chapter 20 is not very long. And so we move very quickly to chapter 21. Chapter 21 is a prophecy against Babylon. Why Babylon? Now, this is, uh, this is an amazing uh, turn here as well, because uh, Babylon was not even envisioned yet. Uh, now I say envisioned or imagined by anyone to be a threat. Uh, Babylon uh, was subservient to Assyria. So why would Babylon even be mentioned here? Well, this is probably one of those instances where it appears that Isaiah is not exactly chronological. Uh, however, 
think of these writings of Isaiah being read by the people of Judah while they are in Babylonian captivity. And that is entirely likely that these prophecies of Isaiah were studied uh, during the time of captivity to discover what, what God's will is. So within chapter 21, we have this very famous verse, uh, chapter 9. Look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses, and he gives back the answer. This is, this is uh, envisioning a, a messenger coming from a, a far-off uh, battlefield. And here's what he says, and he gives back the answer. Babylon has fallen has fallen. All the images of its gods lie shattered on the ground. And this is good news. Uh, where is the gospel in all of this horrible doom and destruction? Well, it's right here, because when you go down to uh, Revelation 14, uh, you find the the second angel saying, "Fallen is Babylon. Fallen is Babylon. Babylon is fallen," and this is this is part of the gospel that evil has been dealt with. Evil is fallen, and so Babylon, of course, always throughout Scripture, the rest of Scripture, uh, kind of becomes this great symbol of evil and captivity, and uh, being used in the New Testament as well. Uh, down to chapter 22, we have the uh, a prophecy about Jerusalem. Uh, verse 5, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, has a day. This is the day of the Lord forecast, this, this day of reckoning, uh, of tumult and trampling and terror in the valley of vision. Uh, this uh, probably referred to the area right outside uh, Jerusalem a day of battering down walls and of crying out to the mountains. Uh, God is, uh, is saying, look, Judah, uh, you see all these nations, and I have spoken about what their, their doom is, what, uh, what their problems are. Don't forget, you uh, are under the same threat. Now, remember the, the, uh, the passage that we read from uh, Jeremiah 18, that says, where God says, if I forecast evil uh, against a nation and they repent, I will relent of the evil that I forecast. But if I forecast uh, prosperity and, and good news and they uh, turn away from me, then I will relent from the good news I had forecast. Uh, the other thing to remember, however, is that in all likelihood, people are reading this during captivity and they're they're remembering why they're in captivity, because they had turned away from God. Um, we skip on down then to um, chapter 23, which is a prophecy against Tyre. Uh, why is it important for Tyre to be mentioned here? Um, Probably because for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is it it shows that God is in charge, that that God uh, sets up nations and tears down nations, and that Yahweh is still uh, in charge. Uh, 
But the other thing that it shows here, uh, and we see this as we go down to the end, end of the chapter, is that even though God is not happy with Tyre, uh, he still, in a way, wants to claim Tyre in the end. She will return to her lucrative prostitution. That was actually a phrase, an expression used to describe Tyre, who was a trading port. And trading was not always uh, looked upon in those days as an honorable profession because it implied, uh, you know, making a profit at someone else's expense. Uh, maybe think about some of the things we've heard about the stock market recently. Uh, uh, and will ply her trade with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. Yet, God says, her profit and her earnings will be set apart for the Lord. They will not be stored up or hoarded. Her profits will go to those who live before the Lord for abundant food and fine clothes. So it, in a way, God uh, brings good out of, <laughs> out of evil there and, and shows how Tyre will end up uh, benefiting God's people. Coming up, Pastor Starla and I are going to talk about covenants, so stay tuned. We have uh, just a brief time here to talk about covenants. Now, um, as you've pointed out to me, uh, Isaiah doesn't say a lot about the covenant, does he? And there's not a lot of uh, uh, description of the covenant or uh, any talk about it, although in next week's uh, chapters, we will run, run across it in an interesting context. But, um, it's, it's in the background because Judah, um, they are God's covenant people. Mm -hmm. uh, so just to start us out, I, I wanted to at least acknowledge that the Bible has uh, a number of different covenants that are talked about. Here's the major ones that are talked about in Scripture. First of all was the covenant to Noah. Uh, you know, the rainbow represents the covenant God made that he's never going to destroy the earth again. It was an unconditional covenant. Mm -hmm. Then we have the covenant to Abraham. Uh, again, this was an unconditional covenant where mm -hmm. God says, I will, uh, I will make your descendants like the stars of the sky, like the sand of the seashore. Then we have the 
Mosaic covenant, uh, mm-hmm. sometimes called the Sinaitic uh, covenant, mm-hmm. where uh, God makes his covenant with his people at uh, Mount Sinai. And then we have the covenant with David. Yes. And uh, this is also an unconditional covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nathan tells David that uh, God will never take his throne away, that his mm-hmm. throne will uh, endure forever. So mm-hmm. how do we, how, how do you want to approach this, uh, this idea of covenant? Uh, can you, can you tell us what a covenant is? What uh, <laughs> uh, it, it sounds like an agreement, but it, it's in, it in seems stronger than yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> well, I think it really is important for us when we when we look at this idea of the covenant, Pastor Mike, is to understand it is far more than what we call it now. For example, if you if you buy a home, or particularly if you have a home in where there's a, a homeowners association, you have you have covenants and such that that you have. Um, But this is a very different sense. The Bible has a very different sense, a very sacred Mm. sense of covenant. So sometimes it can be thought of as a treaty, sometimes as an agreement, sometimes as a deal or a pact, but it's far more than that. Mm. The covenant, uh, especially the covenant between God and humanity, um, any group of humans Mm. is a sacred uh, bond an agreement, mm. more than an agreement, yes. a sacred bond based upon relationship. Yes. And the amazing thing about the covenants of God is that, that this is unlike anything that we have in human interchange because mm. we pretty much come to each other in some degree of pureness. But of course, there's no pureness between us and God. And so what we see in these, what we call the Uh, not the conditional covenants, but the promissorial covenants Mm. is we see God taking upon God's self to enact the covenant. And we are the recipients and, and, and the blessed ones as a result of what God uh, has determined to do God's self Mm. on our behalf. Yes. Yes. So what we see in Isaiah is we see um, we don't hear so much about the covenant. At we it's of course it's it's latent. It's it's yeah. underlining the whole of Isaiah's Implied, prophecies, yeah. right? But but what we do see is we see so much about the Holy One of Israel mm. and the the uh, God God's self, yeah. who God is. We don't hear the word. Uh, read the word covenant until we get way into the 20 something chapters. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's first really used in chapter 42 in, in strongest mm. sense. So it's more about Isaiah is saying, God, God's self will do this. Mm. This is who God is from God's very being. So what I hear you you saying is that, that the covenant expresses uh, what God is about. It doesn't, control God. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> Just as we had a conversation before about the law and God is yes. not, God is not beholding to his own law. There's nothing hanging over God's head, yes. but the law is an expression of how God yes. does uh, of God's own character and how God does life and would have us do yeah. life in his kingdom. So, I guess that's why I react so strongly against mm-hmm. this idea that, 
the law is the basis for God's covenant with his people. Uh, because it, I, I, it just, it feels backwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the covenant is not based on law. The covenant is based on God's self. That's true. And even in the what we call the the suzerain covenants that were known mm. among the Hittites, whatever, in the, during the ancient peoples of the biblical era, um, the suzerain was very often the king and the people that he covenanted with were the vassals yes. uh, underneath him. And, um, and he made the covenant and then with the covenant, he would get law, give laws and say, okay, this is how I'm going to rule you. And this is how things are going to work between us. But the covenant itself was that relationship of, I will be your protector. I will be the one who takes care of you. And of course our covenant with God is so much more than that. Mm. Um, But it is interesting to know that that was the language of the time. How do you see covenant as, even though it's implied, even though it's kind of in the background, how do you see covenant operating in Isaiah, especially when it comes to the other nations? And yes. and, and we, we find that, you know, when, when God makes the covenant at Mount Sinai, right. he, uh, he basically says, not just basically, he <laughs> very literally right. says, uh, I called you out of Egypt, out of all the other nations, you're my people. Yes, but that is so interesting. I was so moved as as I think you were by reading the statement at the end of chapter 19 of mm. Isaiah that talks about how Assyria yes. and Egypt oh, yeah. and Judah are together uh, acknowledged as God's as, as um, chosen in some way and valued by him. Um, that's mm. move, very moving to me. I, I was reading this morning. Uh, in a little devotional, and I, I read this, and I thought, oh, this reminds me so much of what uh, you shared from chapter 19. For the love of God is broader than the measures of man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, Wonderful hymn. <laughs> yes. So when we're thinking about covenant, um, I think the reason that Isaiah emphasizes who God is yes, and and is trying to display to the people of Judah in particular, but, but to many different peoples who God is, this is not a God who, who's vengeant and say, okay, I'm the King. I set the rules. You're messing up. I'm going to curses on you. This is not this. This is more the heart of what we hear in Hosea. This is a lover. If you've ever been deeply betrayed, yeah, by someone you loved and trusted, you would understand Absolutely. where the anger of God comes from. Yes, It's from this heart of love, this deep betrayal yes. he receives from his people. He says later in Isaiah, all day long, I stand with my hands open to you. Yeah, um, you know, And in Hosea, he says, how can I give you up? How can I let you go to the, to the uh, Israelites? So this is the heart of God. And what we're t- what Isaiah is appealing to is beyond covenant because sometimes, and I think we got a hint of that when we were especially looking at Isaiah one. Mm. If you think of covenant in the sense of a pact or an agreement, yes. sometimes when we there's a sense of um, 
a sense of it's owed to you legality yes well, yeah a sense of entitlement there even. you go well, I'm, yeah. in, I'm in covenant with yes. you god i've done x y and z mm. so you should do such and such when what god's heart was was something so much deeper than that yeah. and so i think Isaiah doesn't explicitly talk so much about covenant yeah. because he wants the people to look beyond the the X, Y, Z and look at the heart of God. You remind me of an important passage, uh, which we will get to in a few weeks in Isaiah 58, uh -huh. where people are fasting and saying, God, why don't you notice? Yes. See what I'm doing for you. you yes. Know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Sabbath keeping comes in in the same, right. same breath almost. Exactly. But, uh, uh, before we run out of time, I want to make sure we get to the New Testament mm. uh, in, in how the New Testament applies this idea of, of God's covenant. Mm. And, and the first one that I wanted to notice is in Romans 11. Uh, and this is the very first two verses in Romans 11. Mm. Uh, context here is... God is saving the Gentiles mm. by faith. Yes. The Gentiles are being grafted into the people of God. The question then comes up, well, what about Israel? Yes. And this is where Romans 11, 1 and 2 is just amazing. I ask then, this is Paul speaking. I ask then, did God reject his people? A lot of people, a lot of really questionable theology says that God at the cross, God rejected the Jews, his people. Mm -hmm. Did God reject his people? By no means. Mm -hmm. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he for new. Mm. Now, in the context there, he's talking about the people he foreknew who would uh, accept the gospel. And, uh, and Paul is basically saying, Israelite, Israel is not left out of the good news. I, I'm thinking back to chapter four in Romans, where Paul affirms that God made the covenant with Abraham not based upon law. That law came 400 years later. Yes, yes. But that he made this uh, based <laughs> upon his own, out of his own goodness. In fact, he, yes. he says in Exodus, he says, I chose the smallest people. He says that again in Deuteronomy. Yeah. And what he said to Abraham is, I will bless you to be a blessing. Mm -hmm. So the purpose of covenant, the purpose of being the covenant people was they were to yes. bless, which is why this was so heinous that um, Ahaz and Hezekiah both turned to other nations to yes. protect them. Yes. When they were in this covenant situation in which God said, I will protect you. I am mm. your protector. I will be your God. You will be my people. Yeah. They were essentially, they were essentially spurning that. Mm -hmm. And, and so it, understanding that spurning that deep betrayal when God had done so much for them, yes. especially turning back to Egypt mercy. Yeah. They'd been, that was the big exodus. That was the big birthing of their very nation. Right. It reminds me that uh, for those of us who uh, are followers of Christ, 
uh, we are part of that same everlasting covenant mm -hmm. where we're supposed to be a blessing to the world. Yes. And I hasten to add that we often interpret that to mean, well, that means we're supposed to convert the world. That's not exactly what it says. Yes, uh, the end of Matthew, uh, Jesus says, go and make disciples. And that's certainly included. But we are to bless. We are to benefit uh, the entire mm. world. Um, we got time for one more text. Do you have that that text handy from Second uh, Timothy? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. So uh, this is a, a wonderful text, Second Timothy 2.13. Um, because we often, I think, uh, can worry about the legalities yes. of our covenant with yes. God. Um, we're in, in the covenant, in God's covenant, um, God takes upon God's self to fulfill the covenant and will take the curse if the covenant is broken. And we see that in Jesus Christ. Yeah. And in 2 Timothy uh, 2.13, we read that um, though... We are faithless. He remains faithful yes. because he cannot deny himself. That's an amazing passage. Yes. That is just amazing. And in Hebrews 6, we see this also where uh, Jesus says, uh, the, uh, the writer of Hebrews says that God made this covenant with us based on two things, his own name, that is who he is, yes. and his own word, which cannot be broken. Yes. So we have this firm hope. Yes. That cannot be taken from us. Would you pray for us? Yes. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you are a God of amazing covenant. Mm. We can only come before you and say, we do not deserve oh. this goodness that you have poured out on us. Mm. And I ask you, Lord, if the, on behalf of all of us, that you would forgive us for times that we look at the bad things in the world and, yes. and we think that you have failed us when indeed you have done so much for us. Yes. Open our eyes to see the wonders of your covenant love. Yes. And let our hearts be bonded to you that we yes. cannot Amen. we cannot be um, yes. taken away from this great love. Nothing can distract us. Yes. In Jesus name. Hmm. Amen. Amen.
Happy Sabbath, and welcome to the online worship experience of the Azure Hills Church. We are so glad that you are with us this morning, and it is our rich and full desire that as you worship with us today, you will meet Christ, understand the Holy Spirit, and you will leave with the assurance that hope is not canceled. Won't you pray with me? We thank you, God, our Father, for the beautiful day you've given to us. And now as we come together in our homes, in our cars, wherever we might be this morning to worship you, we pray that your spirit will fill our hearts, that you will elevate our spirits, that you will encourage our souls, and that you will remind us that hope is not canceled. For we hope for the day of the second coming of Christ, when all things will be made new. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Enjoy the service today as you worship together with us. Good morning, dear friends. It's true, Pastor BT, hope is not canceled. But some of us have been feeling like we didn't, didn't imagine how long this could go. And if you're feeling that this Sabbath, oh, we are with you, right there with you. It's been nearly 11 months together that we have been moving between online worship and in-person outdoors. Um, but we never expected this to go this long. But we are so grateful that we get this opportunity to come together each Sabbath, that we are able to connect with one another by the power of the Holy Spirit, even as we miss being together in person in the sanctuary. We long for that day. It is coming, my friends. It is coming. As you and your family are hopping online and joining us for worship, we invite you to let us know where you're tuning in from. And today, um, I will also be receiving texts. So you can see the number right there on the screen below in just a moment. You can text us and let us know where you're tuning in from too. Include your names. Let us know who's there with you. Um, include your names on Facebook or on YouTube, but also in your text messages there, 222-277-7740. And I'll get the text message right here. Would love to be able to hear from you and be able to see that you and your family or you are just joining in for worship this morning. We're so Glad that we get to worship together today. A few things we don't want you to miss as you're as you're joining in and as you're writing those messages. I want you to invite you to greet someone else. You might give them a phone call if you know that they're not online, but go ahead and do that online too. Give them a phone call or a FaceTime message. We need these connections with each other so much. We are looking forward to outdoor worship this coming Sabbath, February 6th, and we have a guest with us who will be preaching as we start off Black History Month, who will be sharing one of Dr. Martin Luther King's sermons with us. It will be a really remarkable and moving service that we will have together live, outdoors, masked, in person. We invite you to come out. You do need to register. You do need to plan to wear your mask. And we will have health screenings there, of course, on site. So go to our website, azurehills.org, and go ahead and register your family right away. We would love to have you there. Today, we have a very special treat as a part of our worship service. Loma Linda Academy has prepared songs for us to be able to enjoy during our worship. Thank you so much to you, Academy students. You'll recognize a few of our own. Thank you guys so much. We are really excited that you'll be sharing with us today. Also from Loma Linda Academy, Meet the Teachers Week for Loma Linda Elementary is February 8 to 11. Now, this is a virtual event, and it's for all those 
prospective students. So if you're not a student, but you've always wondered, is this the right place for my child or my grandchild or my neighbor? Invite them to come and be a part. Now, the great part is there will be these different Zoom signups and you can meet the teachers and get a chance to online, get a chance to meet the teacher and get to know the, the environment and what Loma Linda has to offer. So go ahead and sign up at LLA.org backslash meet. You can also schedule your own individual campus tour so you can see what the campus of Loma Linda Elementary has to offer as well. So prospective students, this is your chance. Make sure you go ahead and register as this is coming in just, oh, just a week or two. It would be great to have you there. There's a membership transfer reading that you'll see in your bulletin. This is the first reading and you can go ahead and check that out. Today, I want to especially invite you. Oh, happy Sabbath to each of you. So glad to see you joining on. Great. Some of you. Oh, great. I see a few of you are using texting. Wonderful to see you joining in from Redlands and from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and from Grand Terrace. Wonderful to see where you're joining in from. Happy Sabbath to each one of you. Please keep saying hello. Let us know who's joining in as you are worshiping together with us today. It's wonderful to see your, your names come across the screen right now. We want to give a shout out, and I see that they're online right now. Battle Cat is Gary Simmons. Gary and Kitty celebrated their 40th wedding anniversary, and I just have to show you this right now. Check out these pictures. <laughs> Look at they have not changed. Check those two out. I love these. Happy 40th anniversary to the two of you. Those pictures are great and both of you are fantastic. I had just one more I have to share with you though and I asked her permission because she shared it with just me but could you show that picture of Kitty for a moment? Now some of you might have gotten into the routine and the habit of just wearing your pajamas or your yoga pants as you worship with us but if we have that picture of Kitty, she has had the practice for all these 11 months of the pandemic of dressing up every Sabbath, even as they're watching from their living room and from their couch. So she has not broken that habit. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to see the two of you celebrating your anniversary and also to see that those habits of um, gathering together that you will be ready to jump back in. Some of us might have to take some adjustment, but you won't because you already have been practicing this. A few other things that we want to make sure to let you know. Uh, Gilbert Flowers, you celebrated 60 years of life on the 24th, and we are so grateful for you, Gilbert. You're a great blessing to this church. Happy birthday, happy 60th birthday. Geraldine Condes turned 50 on the 25th, Happy milestone birthday. We are so happy to have you as a part of our church and we wish you a happy 50th birthday. And then tomorrow, Ryan Weller turns 40. So today is actually her last day in her 30s. You know, Ryan and Jason right there and their sweet Avery. Ryan, we wish you a very happy birthday. We are so blessed by you and really hope that this next decade is a beautiful one for each of you as you celebrate 40, 50, and 60 years of life. One final announcement, some of you might have even been, if you're um, uh, employees or students of Loma Linda University or Medical Center, you might already know this information, but we are putting out the call for volunteers for Loma Linda University Health. There is a huge push for 
vaccinations for a clinic and volunteers are needed. Logistics volunteers, that is non-medical, and also clinical volunteers who will need to have an active license in order to be able to administer the vaccinations. You can sign up right on the site that you'll see here below, um, right there, you can volunteer and your help, your time will make a tremendous difference as we together join in trying to beat this pandemic, this COVID-19. As people are vaccinated, as this continues to spread, we will allow ourselves um, to be able to beat this and to get to the other side. So we would love to encourage you to volunteer. Please sign up. Your time and your efforts make such a difference. Thank you again for being here. Again, we have a special treat with Loma Linda Academy's music today, and we are praying that today as we worship together, as we continue in the series on the Holy Spirit, that this same Holy Spirit would knit us together, closer together as a community. Oh, I love all the comments that are going. Keep that up, each of you, and we're so glad that you're here. May God bless you. Hey, guys, it's Pastor Hey guys, it's Pastor Sam, and today, before we get started, we're going to do some deep breathing together. So whatever you're doing right now, I want you to pause and let's take some deep breaths. Deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth like you're blowing bubbles. You should feel your tummy go out when you take a deep breath in through your nose, and then it goes down as you breathe out through your mouth. One more deep breath in, and then a deep breath out. Very good, everyone. I don't know about you, but I feel way more relaxed. And that's something that you can do when you feel anxious or scared or mad. Anything that causes your heart to beat really fast and you might feel really tense, just take a few deep breaths in through your nose and out through your mouth, and that will make you feel a lot more relaxed. When we breathe, we get air into our lungs and our lungs take the oxygen that's in the air and they send it to every cell of our body through our blood. And once our cells use the oxygen to do everything that our body needs to do to keep us alive, it releases a gas called carbon dioxide. That stuff's not really good for us, so we let it out of our body by exhaling or breathing out. It's amazing what happens with every breath you take. Let's take another deep breath together. Just now, our lungs took the oxygen from the air, sent it to every cell of our body so that our cells could use it to keep it alive, and then release all the carbon dioxide we didn't need. Incredible! Our lungs are amazing. We can't see them, but they live behind our rib cage. Here's the rib cage on Johnny Bone. It protects the lungs so that they are safe. If you could see them, you would see little red sacs of air that expand and contract when we breathe in and breathe out. 
You can't see your rib cage either, but if you feel your sides, you can feel these bumps down your side, and that is your amazing rib cage keeping your lungs safe. Since we can't see how our lungs work, let's make a model lung. This one is really easy. All you'll need is the top of a plastic water bottle, a straw, some scissors and tape, a little piece of Play-Doh, no matter what color it is, and a couple of balloons. The first thing that we're gonna do is tie a knot at the end of one of our balloons, and then we're gonna cut the very top off of this balloon. Next, we're gonna take the next balloon we're gonna put the straw into it part way, and then we're going to very carefully tape the balloon to the straw. You want to remember you don't want to crush the straw, and after you tape it, make sure to blow into the end and make sure it inflates a little bit to make sure you haven't crushed the straw. Once that's done, take your straw with the balloon and then poke it through the cap of your water bottle or you can just take the cap off the water bottle and then seal the top with some Play-Doh. All right, whether you have used the cap of your water bottle or not, you'll want to use the Play-Doh to seal all those edges to make sure no air comes in, but again, make sure that you haven't crushed the straw and blow in through the straw to make sure air can get to the balloon. Perfect. For the final part, you'll want to take the balloon that you cut the top off of and stretch it over the opening on the bottom. Let's do it. All right, our model lung is ready. Now, in order to inflate the lung, we're not gonna blow into the straw because that's not actually how our lungs fill with air. Instead, we're gonna hold the bottle and pull on this knot here. And if you look closely, you can see that the balloon inside, which represents a lung, is filling and emptying of air. The reason this happens is because when I pull on this balloon, it creates space inside the bottle. So air comes down through the tube to fill the balloon in order to fill that space. Our lungs are much more complex, but this shows us how our lungs work. When we take a deep breath in, what happens is that the muscle under our lungs called the diaphragm moves down, creating space. So air comes in through our airways, through our mouth and our nose, and fills our lungs to fill that space. And when we exhale, the diaphragm, that muscle moves back up and pushes all of the air inside of our lungs out, which has that carbon dioxide we don't want. Just like we can't live without air, our hearts and our relationship with God cannot live without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is all around us, just like the air that we breathe. We need the Holy Spirit in order for our hearts to truly be alive. But just like we can hold our breath and keep out the air that we need, we can also do things in our lives to keep out the Holy Spirit. Things like ignoring God's still small voice when He speaks to us or by being unkind to other people, even when we know that God can give us the power to love and forgive our enemies if only we ask. We can do things to hold out the Holy Spirit, but we don't want to do that because just like we need air in order to live, we need the Holy Spirit in our hearts in order to truly be alive. 
The good news is, even if we have done things in our lives to try to hold out the Holy Spirit, all we need to do is ask God for forgiveness and ask Him to fill our hearts. And just like we fill our lungs with air with every breath we breathe, the Holy Spirit will fill us with His presence and give us life. I hope that with every breath you take, you remember that you need the Holy Spirit just as much as you need air. Our lungs are a great reminder of this because after all, they are an incredible part of you. Good morning. It's Chaplain Smith, Tom Smith. It's time for the offering appeal. I know this guy who once said to me, all they want at church is your money. That's all they ever talk about. And I said to him, come on now, that's not altogether true. Hopefully it's not. Uh, they do talk about it some, and uh, we're talking about it now. So why do we talk about it? Uh, very frankly, we talk about offerings and tithes because it takes money to keep things moving. Think about your home, your business, if you have one. It takes money to care for the needs to pay for the electricity, for the water, for the gas, for insurance, mortgage, and a hundred other things. If it's true for us at home, it's doubly true at the church. They have all the same expenses. Uh, most of us don't realize that our church budget, the local budget, is close to $100,000 a month. That's bills that need to be paid each and every month. And where the resources come from, they come from folks like you and me. So um, I want to encourage you to do what you can on a regular, consistent basis. I think it was John Wesley who said, make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. So we give on a systematic basis to help with a cause much greater than ourselves. This is the cause of the everlasting gospel. Uh, there are offerings and there are tithes. Offerings stay in the local church and tithes move on to help the worldwide organization at a conference level, then at a union level, and then division and general conference. There are places all over that don't have the resources we have. And so that is a shared thing. Remember, uh, God loves a cheerful giver too. May God's peace rest upon us as we continue to worship. We are going to have a short prayer now. Heavenly Father, we commit our ways to you and thank you. We have the health and strength enough to be able to give what we can in accordance with your divine will. May it be so and may our community be blessed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.
Would you pray with me? 
as we speak to our Father. Our Father God, we come to you this morning, first with our adoration of all you've done for us, of all you are doing for us now, and what you'll do for us in the future. You are all-knowing, you are all-loving, and we're grateful for that. We confess that we have not allowed ourselves to see you as clearly as we should, spending time with you in, in speech and prayer and reading the word. We ask that your spirit might enliven our, our spirits, that we'd want to communicate with you better and know you better. We thank you that you never give up. You never say that we are not worth it. We're highly valued by you, our Father God, and you gave your only son as proof of that. Thank you. Thank you so much. And this morning we come to you during this season of COVID with many requests, some on our hearts, some on our lips. And we wish that you would know our hearts and you would hear our words. We ask that we would have a steady pace in our spiritual growth. We ask that your spirit would be alive and well in our lives, in our families, in our communities, in our church, and in the world. We love you, Father God, and we ask that we'd have a sense of that loving just today as we join together during worship service. We thank you and love you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Good morning again, friends. It is good to get to see all of the comments in the chat and to be able to interact together today. I want to show you that picture that we were just earlier in church family going to show you. See, this is Kitty Simmons celebrated her anniversary on Monday, Gary and Kitty, and she dresses up like this each Sabbath. Last, last week in my sermon, I talked about, some of you said you don't want to change church attire. Once we come back, you might take a little bit to adjust because it's just so comfortable. Well, she dresses up every week so that she doesn't get out of the habit. So there's that, that's the picture I wanted to show you. In the chat there for a moment, could you just write out what's one of the scariest or riskiest things that you've tried before? What's one of the scariest or riskiest things that you've tried before? Just take a moment. Oh, Battle Cat, of course, you know that lady. What's one of the riskiest or, or scariest things that you've tried before? Just go ahead and put that in the chat. I would love to see what kind of daredevils we have among us or what kind of things that you have done. Perhaps for you, it was mission service and something went awry or there was some other experience that you have. Just, just drop uh, in the chat in YouTube or Facebook. Let us know right now. You can, of course, chat to that number that we sent you earlier, and I'll see that here on the iPad as well. Let's pause for prayer as you're thinking of the riskiest or scariest things that you have tried before. God, we thank you for this time of coming together. We thank you for the joy of this Sabbath, the, the sunshine and the gift of being together. I pray that we would feel the connection with you and with one another and that your Holy Spirit would minister to us in the way that you know that we need. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. 
I want to see it. Oh, mountain biking for sure, Sam. Definitely mountain biking. Joining the Marine Corps for sure. Coming to America, not knowing the country. Of course, Didi, definitely. Firefighting or skydiving. Oh, yes. I Both of those are risky for sure. Skydiving. Yes. Oh, skydiving. Wow, we've got lots of skydivers here, you all. <laughs> Ernie, Ernie, it's not mountain biking, but it's becoming apparent. Definitely some others relate to that. Jumping to lake from high, whoa, jumping off like into the lake. That sounds pretty, lake jumping is something that we did in Texas when Caleb and I were getting to know each other down there at Southwestern University. There were some crazy jumps. Skiing down a narrow steep chute at Kirkwood, wow, Sandy. Cliff diving in Hawaii. We've got some people that love adrenaline here. Two miles of zip lining with your teen granddaughters, Mary Jane. Fantastic. Truck surfing during college. Yeah, I'm not sure, Danette. I don't, you'd have to describe that a little bit more. Maybe someone else knows what that is. I would love to know. Diving into a pool, Isaac. Definitely, that is a big risk. You have to just jump off. Uh, buying clothes <laughs> from online stores, <laughs> your riskiest activity. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't ever work out right, does it? Um, coercing thousands of, what? Couriering thousands of dollars in cash across dark streets in Kiev, Ukraine at midnight alone at the age of 19. Yes, Caleb has stories about those mission years you should check out. That was definitely risky for sure. Oh, wow. In the Yucatan diving in. Oh, wow, Katita. We've got we've got so many different stories and adventures here. Skydiving. Oh, joy hiking. Skydiving for Brandon, too, at Lake Paris. So many amazing adventures. I love to hear about these. And I know that there's pictures and stories behind these that would just be fun to share sometime. Thank you for sharing those. Please feel free to keep dropping those in. Yeah, I don't know if Caleb's a spy there, Battle Cat, but a missionary, a student missionary for sure. But all of these different, all of these different things that are were scary or or risky. Um, for me, one of them was bungee jumping, standing on the edge and just I, I didn't want to jump off, but someone had offered anyone, you know, who's wanting to bungee jump, I'll pay for it. And why pass up an opportunity, a free risky moment? So jumping off, that was one of the risky ones that came to my mind. But of course, there are others. And sometimes some of the riskiest things that we've done, there's adventurous things like all of these, which I love. Some of the riskiest things we've done have been becoming vulnerable and sharing ourselves with other people. For some of you, the riskiest thing you've done is, is joining this church, joining a small group, getting connected in with people so that they could actually know you. Um, because for some, being willing to be known ranks right up there with these risky adventures, these jumping off. If COVID-19 has taught us anything, and it's taught us many things, I believe, it's taught us how connected we really are how we really truly need each other. And there is risk involved with relationship, but we desperately need relationship. It's why right now the connection um, is something we're all longing for. 
one of our dear members that we had a, a Zoom memorial for last night would call and text all the time, just when can we come back to church? When can we be together? Because we were made for connection. We need this. And even though it's risky to be in a relationship, we love each other and we want to be in relationship. Science has already shown that connection with others is a matter of life and death. Perhaps you've seen that loneliness is as dangerous for you as smoking, loneliness. So we desperately need connection. If you might feel yourself getting low this week or, or that you just can't seem to feel right, have you thought about, have you connected with God and with people lately? Many of us have been taught that we're dependent for a time. There's this childhood phase that you're dependent and then you grow into independence point blank, end of story. But in the life of believers, in the life of the body of Christ, it's actually a growth from dependence to this dependence on God and interdependence with each other. Rather than growing to this point where I, I don't need anyone, we actually grow in our dependence on God and our interdependence with the people around us in the ways that we're willing to risk and show up vulnerable with the people in the body of Christ. Research has proven this too. In their recent book called Burnout, Emily and Amelia Nagoski have shared in that book, self-care is not the cure for burnout. Care for one another is. Oh, where have we heard this before? These care for one another is all throughout scripture. So if you've been trying to fill up just on your own, or if you've been hitting a wall and, and you haven't been able to get over that yourself, because you're designed, you and I are designed to need each other. We need connection. Care for one another is. Now, one more quote from their book. Connection is as necessary as food and water. Connection is as necessary as food and water. So our, our ability to live dependent on God and interdependent with one another is essential for our health and well-being. Easier said than done, though, right? We all want to be unified in the spirit. We want to have connection, especially challenged during the pandemic, but challenging at all times. We want to be connected, but we don't always know how. Today, we're going to look at the scriptures about the Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit as the connection, the, the fabric that holds us together, that, that connects us the body of Christ, that the Holy Spirit is actually the one that holds you and I in this connection that we so desperately need, the vibrancy of this connection that holds us together. I want to look at two commands about the Holy Spirit in the letters of Paul that deal directly with how we relate to each other, to the body of Christ. Now, these are pastoral letters, these epistles from Paul, and one was written to the church in Ephesus and one to the church in Thessalonica. So let's dive in these two imperatives. The first one in Ephesians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The second one, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Let's go in deeper for a moment. Ephesians chapter four, Ephesians chapter four. Oh yes, connection as food and water. I just, oh wow. I think I have to catch up on those. You guys are some risky folks, man. I'm gonna just, yeah, Fulvio, that's amazing. Connection is as necessary as food and water, absolutely. And Ephesians chapter four. Now this chapter talks about the Holy Spirit in some beautiful and remarkable ways. It's one of the places where you can find the list of some of the spiritual gifts, these gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the body of Christ. 
it's also a part where then it gets down to the rubber meeting the road of how we treat each other. Notice in chapter three, uh, chapter four, verse three, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Notice this one spirit, this, this God that connects us, that holds us together is the God who then allows us to have peace with each other, to have this connection, this vibrancy. Ephesians chapter four, he goes into this section and he actually later on quotes a quote from the Old Testament. This Isaiah 63 verse 10 is actually where we see this do not grieve the Holy Spirit. It's from the Old Testament and also something that Paul quotes here. Now, this is the book that we're studying in Sabbath school right now. If you haven't seen Pastor Mike and Pastor Starlet in Grace Notes, you'll want to jump on and check it out. It is a great blessing. Or if you're not a part of one of our adult Zoom Sabbath schools, reach out and Pastor Mike can connect you with one of those because these Sabbath schools are vibrant points of connection, this connection that we need so bad, so desperately. And you'll grow deeper in your relationship with God too. So get connected with a Sabbath school. How do we grieve the spirit? How is it that we go from this, this ideal, this make every effort to stay united in the body of faith, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, two, in verse 30, and how do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Well, the verses around it give us the context and allow us to understand how this grieving of the Holy Spirit happening happens by promoting what destroys community and rejecting what builds up the community. We grieve the Spirit of God. There's an entire list here in Ephesians chapter four, the things that break down community and the things that build up community. Starting in verse 24, it says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. It goes on to say, put off this, put on this, these actions that are tangible that allow people to be able to understand your care and your love for them. Tell the truth, no sinning in our anger, no stealing, no destructive language, uh, exercise compassion, offer forgiveness. This is what makes up this list that leads up to verse 30, that we not grieve the Holy Spirit. Not grieving the Holy Spirit is the reason, the motivation that we have to follow each of the guidelines in this list. This desire to not grieve the spirit allows us to treat the people around us differently. Here is where, in the words of one commentary, our ecclesiology, our eschatology, that is, our eschatology, our understanding of where we are at in earth's history is brought to bear on our ethics. That is how we act, how we treat each other. The double focus is on the, the present, the now, and the future. That is the not yet. It's not just about our beliefs that the Holy Spirit is concerned with. The teachings that God wants to bring back through the Holy Spirit ministering in your heart and mind, it's not just about those beliefs, but about your behavior, how we act with one another. How do we do this? I want to draw your attention to one on this list. It says here, in your anger, verse 26, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. In your anger, do not sin. 
Most make this a conditional statement and it's really strong to be read that way. When and if you're angry, don't sin. But there are other commentators that emphasize it as a dual command. Be angry, do not sin. That's the second point. Be angry, look at the injustices of the world, yet do not sin. Don't hold on to bitterness. Don't hold on to rage. There's a place for our anger in our experience, but it must not take over. Is that a tall order or what? Talk about risk in relationship. It's difficult to engage, to feel, but yet to not allow our behavior to then become destructive for the people around us. Some have said to me, I just don't feel in my relationship with God. I pray. I don't feel anything. I don't feel like something's happening. And yes, that is understandable because there is this immense, incredible, invisible God moving in your heart and life. And this journey is one of a lifetime. So God is working in your life. Even as you don't know it, there are things that are happening and you and I can't see them, but we wait to be able to see what God is working on in us. There's that element. But I also wonder, is it simply because we're not allowing ourselves to feel that we don't feel anything when it comes to relate to God? We can't selectively numb what we feel. So if we're ignoring one part, we're ignoring the rest. Instead, God invites us to feel. Clearly, anger can be destructive. And the emphasis in this verse is do not sin. Don't inflict harm or suffering. But what if we're only able to avoid sin or get rid of, as the verse says, the negative side of anger? That is bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice, like verse 21, 31 says, if we allow ourselves to feel angry. The more people tell you don't think about the pink elephant, the more you're going to think about it. Uh, instead, God is saying, get angry. Feel the injustice of it all. See how the system is rigged. See how things are not fair. Take in the abuses of power and see them for what they are. Think about what people of color have to go through. Think about what women have experienced and the, the discrimination that has happened. Remember the injustices that continue to Native and Indigenous peoples. Recall the plight of the poor, the fatherless, the widow, the stranger, as the scriptures call them. God says, Take all that in, get angry, but don't sin. Don't stay there. Do not sin by getting bitter or welcoming rage. All of these are actions that destroy human relationship. God's call to us is to build up the body of Christ. The spirit says, I want you to be one. To, for you to have this connection that is maintained by the vibrancy of the spirit among you. That happens through the gifts that I give you, and it also happens by the ways that you relate to each other. The call to believers is to build up the body of Christ by how we live and act among each other. Let your anger move you to prayer and move you to action. The overarching theme of this entire section is reject what destroys communion and promote what builds up the community of Christ. The crux of it actually comes because there were no chapter divisions when it was originally written is chapter five, verse one and two. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. Follow God's example. 
walk in the way of love. If you want to just write one thing as your theme for next week, walk in the way of love. It's this beautiful invitation of us, of God to follow, for us to follow God in this way of love that Jesus showed us what it was like. And the Holy Spirit promises to empower us. We are called to walk in the way of love together. The call to be like God is unbelievable. It was seen in the Old Testament in Leviticus 19, and it's seen now here in this passage where it says, follow after me as I do this. I want my image to be in you, fully expressed. Some might get worried with this kind of list that, that Paul is writing, that perhaps he's saying things that are legalistic. He's, he's writing out this whole list of how we must act and behave with each other. But this isn't legalism. This is a life in Christ. And he's saying you can't have the Holy Spirit and, and Christ at work in your life without it changing how you're acting towards others with what you pay attention to in the lives of others. In the words of one theologian, Christian living requires certain and specific actions. The Christian faith is not a passive religion. It is an aggressive pursuit of the productive and beneficial. Oh, I love that description. Christianity is this passionate pursuit, aggressive pursuit of the productive and the beneficial. The Christian ethic is a relational one. We are in relationship with God and we're in relationship with each other. And God enables a change in how we relate to those around us. God actually responds to our behavior. Think about the vulnerability of God to say the Holy Spirit can be grieved. That's the vulnerability of God. Our relationship with God cannot be separated from our relationship with other people. Our relationship with God cannot be separated with how we relate to other people. God chooses to be vulnerable, to be hurt by how we act towards one another. The Holy Spirit is grieved, the scripture says, when there's brokenness between us. This isn't the first time we've seen this link between our relationship with God and our relationship to others. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Jesus says, if you are bringing your gift, but you remember something is broken between you or your brother or your sister, leave the gift on the altar. Be reconciled and then come back to your worship. The gift, the sacrifice on the altar was something God commanded. And God said, it's so important, this relationship between you that I want you to leave it and go reconcile first. This interrelationship between us, this interconnectedness, as we depend on God, as we depend on the Spirit, there's this interconnection between us and the people around us. It's fundamental to the Christian life. Now, the second part, that's do not grieve the Spirit. First Thessalonians, turn to First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19 to 22. This is do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not put out the Spirit's fire or do not quench or squelch the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject whatever is harmful. If you just read do not quench the Spirit, it would sound like this overarching theme for your life. And it can be indeed, but we can see the specifics from the context of what it's talking about, what it's dealing with. Manifestations of the spirit at work in people's lives are something hard to know what to do with. It's easier for us to just keep everything under control ourselves and to know what to expect or anticipate. But the gifts of the spirit 
The gifts that God gives to the body of Christ are subject to misuse and manipulation. But Paul says, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Just because you've seen that happen, Paul says, don't throw it out, but test everything. Don't stop living in the spirit, but test, discern everything that's happening. Just because someone told you, the spirit told me to say this to you and what followed was some strange stuff, it doesn't mean it's not real. Don't throw it all out because of this. Just because someone did something strange with the gift of prophecy in your life that was unhealthy, don't throw away the gift that is so relevant to our lives. There's no biblical basis to suggest that the gifts of the Spirit have stopped being given. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about how these gifts are all given. Someone might be a hand, someone might be an eye, someone might be an ear, but we're all given gifts and there's an interdependence that's seen in the body. This metaphor of the body is not on accident. The Holy Spirit enables and enlivens the whole body, just like that beautiful children's story, um, Pastor Sam, about the oxygen going throughout the body. The, the Holy Spirit is needed for all parts of the body, but each part must do its part. Each part is unique, but we are interdependent on each other. As Gordon Fee says, the antidote for abuse is proper use. So don't put out the spirit just because someone was doing something crazy, Paul says to Thessalonica. Instead, test everything and welcome the spirit. Discern if this is of the spirit. Some traditions or cultures or movements are open to certain expressions of the spirit's work, but closed to others. But it's impossible for us from where we sit to make generalizations on what people are open to or, or what they're um, experiencing with the Holy Spirit. Everyone needs to take seriously this message. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't suppress the Spirit. Don't put it out. Instead, test everything. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. However that manifests in your culture or your experience, it's important to remember, though, that every gift of the Spirit comes through the human vessel. Every gift comes through the human vessel. It's a story, our story, your story of brokenness, of strength, your story of your life. When considering what gifts the Holy Spirit has given you, I invite you to ask yourself, what is the narrative of my life? What am I called to? How do I come alive with the gifts the Spirit has given me? What in the world makes me angry? And how can I use that passion to make a difference in the world in the ways that I've been gifted? 1 Corinthians 12 is a really great starting point for the list of the gifts of the Spirit. Ephesians 4 is another one. There are other places in scriptures, in the scriptures that you can go. But asking these questions about your own story, what has God led you to? God loves to redeem our pain. What kind of brokenness have you experienced that God might want to use specifically in the lives of other people around you. Truth is, we need you to be you. We desperately need you to be you. Don't stop the gifts of the Spirit. Many times because of insecurity or because we feel like we don't have enough or because we feel like we're just not there yet, we withhold or that is quench the gifts of the Spirit because we've judged that they are not ready to be shared. Instead, God says, don't quench that, share it. The overarching principle, remember, of these verses is 
How does the Holy Spirit build up the community of Christ? Through how we relate to each other, Ephesians 4 says, and then this in how we welcome the Spirit to live and work among us through the gifts of the people of God. Don't stop the voice of the Spirit that leads you to build up those around you, that leads you to share those gifts that you have. To quench the Spirit in your life might mean refusing to share your gift. It might mean believing you're not whole enough yet to reach out to that person, that you're still too broken. The picture of the body, though, is interdependence. We need you, you need us, and that's how we are designed to be. If we could just somehow rewrite the, the idea that I was dependent and now I become independent, and so I don't need anybody. The scriptures say otherwise. We were dependent and now we have grown into mature dependence on God and interdependence with each other. I need you to be fully who you were made to be in order for us to be who we're called to be. This church will only be who we are called to be as you become who you are called to be. Test the things that are said to be from the Spirit, to see if they're genuine and trustworthy, but don't put out the Spirit's fire, Paul says, especially when the Spirit might show up in ways you don't expect. Hold on to the good. Remember things come through human vessels. The Spirit needs to be able to have both the freedom to move, and yet, Paul says, everything must be tested. The key word is control. We must be willing to let go of control in order to allow God to work. Not testing. We must not do that, Paul says, but we can't have things so tightly under control that God doesn't have the freedom to work. It's required, Paul says, to have the freedom for God to work and also for us to test those things that happen. The problem is one of control. Too little or too much. This overarching principle, remember, is all about how the Holy Spirit builds up the body of Christ and unifies us, strengthens us. So God is grieved in our, our relationships when we are suffering, when there's brokenness among us. And God is quenched when we withhold the gifts that we have from those around us or, or when we have too tightly a control on things and we don't have space for the Holy Spirit to work. I love this story that Tom Willis shares. He was a university chaplain at the Grand Terrace University in Phoenix, Arizona, and he picked up Leonard Sweet, author, speaker. Maybe some of you have read some of the things that he has written. Um, I've heard him numerous times. He picked him up at the airport in his brand new Ford pickup to take him to a leadership conference where he was speaking with his university. Since Sweet was still mourning the trade-in of his Dodge pickup, the two men immediately bonded and they started talking about this. Nothing is more beautiful than a man and his truck. We might broaden it because someone might in the chat say a woman and her truck too, but this made them closer immediately. They started talking about trucks and Sweet tells what happens next. As he finished the leadership conference and he was ready to be picked up, he climbed into Tom's Ranger for a ride back to the airport a day later. And he noticed on the side as he was getting in that there were two huge scrapes along the passenger door. What happened? This truck is so new. You can smell it inside. 
My neighbor's basketball post fell on the truck, Tom replied sadly. You're kidding, Sweet recounts. How awful, he said. This truck is brand new. How are you doing? You know, what's even worse is my neighbor doesn't feel responsible for the damage. Immediately, Sweet says he rose up in his new friend's defense. Did you contact the insurance company? How are you going to make him pay for it? He said he'll never forget what Tom said next. This has been a real spiritual journey for me. After a lot of soul searching and discussions with my wife about hiring an attorney, it came down to this. I can either be right or I can be in relationship with my neighbor. Since my neighbor will probably be with me longer than this truck, I decided I'd rather be in relationship than be right. Besides, trucks are meant to be banged up, so mine got initiated into the real world a bit earlier than I expected. The spirit longs to hold us together in relationship, for us to know what matters most, for us to be held in this relationship with each other. But it's not something that we have to do alone. It's not something that we can do alone. Just like air in our lungs, the Holy Spirit is needed in us in order for us to experience what Paul is describing here, this way of relating that comes from the Spirit, holding us together by the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that is the irreplaceable connection. We may try to replace the Holy Spirit with so many other things. We might sometimes live in ways where we pretend we don't need God. But the Holy Spirit is irreplaceable, holding the fabric of our lives and our church together. I want you to think about your life for a moment. Are there ways you are being convicted about grieving or quenching the Spirit? It's not something that God wants you to carry a heavy burden of guilt about, but rather just say, come. I know I can't do this on my own. Come. Come into my heart. Come into my life and work because I desire for you to live and work in me. Perhaps for some of you, it was simply this, that you have been disqualifying and discrediting the gifts of the Spirit that want to be shown up in your story. Just welcome God saying, come. I invite you to use what you've given me. Or maybe for you, that that part about living in interdependence was the hardest part because though you might take some other risks, though you might sign up readily for skydiving, you feel really nervous about risking in relationship. You just might say, God, teach me how important connection is in my life. Teach me how important it is for me to reach out and connect with others. It matters, friends. It matters. As we're listening to this last song, and as we hear, especially Javen, I'm so glad that you shared this um, lead part with us, Wimbledon Academy. We're glad you shared this song with us. Reflect and invite the Holy Spirit to unearth, to bring up those things that God is speaking to you today from the scriptures. Desperate for you, I 
Thank you so much, David and friends. That was really, really beautiful. I surrender. That is my prayer. And that's what I'm inviting you to pray today. You're right. I was reading, catching up, reading the chat right there. It is hard uh, to be angry and not sin. Yeah, that's really hard for us to live in connection and relationship is hard. Um, but it's something that we are not in this alone. The Holy Spirit is among us. And the gift of the Spirit is, as we empty ourselves right now, as we pause for this moment and surrender, we are filled. We are filled with strength that we didn't have on our own. We're filled with kindness and compassion and love that we didn't have on our own. And there is this vibrancy of connection that the Spirit holds us in. So I invite you to pray. Whatever is on your heart today, just lift that up. You're welcome to put it in the chat if you'd like, or you can just speak it out loud as I'm praying, as we pray together. Dear Jesus, we don't want to grieve your spirit. We don't want to quench your spirit. We welcome the spirit's fire. We welcome the interconnectedness that is the body of Christ. But it's hard. It's hard for us. Right now, we're at a crossroads in our, our country, in our communities, about how do we live with each other? What does it look like to live united and connected with each other, God? But it's hard, and we pray that the church, that you would be alive and active among us, and that you'd show us the way forward. We believe in the work that you can do among us. It's easy for us to re replace the spirit, but the spirit is irreplaceable in how you're able to work and live and move among us. So we pray for this power over each person's life. There might be someone right now that's just listening, saying, it's good, all of that, but what I'm desperate for is connection right now. God, I pray that you would allow us to have the courage to risk, to be vulnerable, to reach out and to seek out connection because you designed us to live this way in interdependence with each other. Let us show up with our gifts. Let us show up connected, I pray. And I pray your blessing over each one of the body of Christ gathered here today in the name of Jesus. We long for that time when not only will we be together and connected, but we will be physically in the same space. We look forward to that day and we long, Jesus, for your return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May God bless you. We look forward to outdoor worship next week. So make sure you sign up on the website. And again, it will be offered online. So if you are not coming out, that is just fine. Watch for it at 1130. And we are in for a very special treat. God bless you, each one of you.